So can you talk about uh, this infographic and maybe where the data for it came from? And then let's go over just some of the awesome cues. And you know, I'm looking at the infographic right now, um, just some of the great cues that can be provided to runners or that runners can focus on to, I won't say, you know, run with the best form, because you said you don't, you know, like that word, but, you know, the best form for them, maybe, or the most ideal form for right. whatever type type of runner they are. Sure. So what, I, what I'll do is I will uh, preface this for the listeners is that one of my roles on the American College of Sports Medicine is I chair the committee on, on consumer outreach. And so what that means is I try and make the science digestible, usable, as factual as we can make it for the public and for public use. So it's very important to me. One of the things I've really enjoyed about this position is taking what we know and helping people uh, make healthy decisions about the uh, techniques that they engage in, the um, processes that they do, do, products that they buy. What is it based on and how do we go from there? So the impetus for this infographic was really based on our love of what we do and that there's such a huge interest scientifically about running science, but also from the public. People from you know, elementary school are already gauge, engaging in running and our oldest runner is 85 years of age and they're still competing. And so this is just fabulous that this is a sport that people can do for a lifetime. So what can we do to help people uptake habits that are less likely to injure you over time? And so um, this took a lot of going back through the literature and this now goes back through a couple of decades, really about understanding running from the basic mechanically, how does a human run? And what are the normal strategies? What, what do we look for? And then the science developed into getting therapists involved. So there's some fantastic work from Irene Davis's group, um, Mike Fredrickson's group, Brian Heiderscheidt's group. Um, so they brought in the medical part and the therapy part and really started looking at techniques to help keep um, runners either rehabilitated, safe, and back out there and being injury free. So I credit them with doing a lot of this foundational work and it's hard to be a pioneer. So I just wanna make sure that the listeners know that this takes a long time to, to do this work. We over the last decade have also embarked on a variety of different studies to understand running motion um, through different conditions, whether it's holding hydration gear, running downhill, um, involving people that have different body masses or ages. So not just the collegiate healthy runner, we wanted to make this generalizable for people of all different um, experiences and backgrounds. So that's where the science is coming from. From that, what can we distill down and say, okay, what appears to be patterns? So I encourage people to look at data in the context of patterns. Um, don't just take what your word for it from one source, read a few, and then look for patterns because you might find things from one paper that look really, really neat, but don't necessarily apply to others. So what I've tried to do is be very careful and purposeful about the things that we put on this infographic by looking at things that have consistently emerged over time as potentially being helpful. So that's where this came from. And so uh, when this was recently released out to the, the public this past spring, um, overall there was really nice uh, support for it. And then there's some that um, either disagreed or, uh, basically had some thoughts on skill acquisition 
and maybe this isn't necessarily something people can use right away. And so part of what we did is again put context why this was developed. So we just gave this to our uh, to the leadership yesterday. If you're going to be posting that commensurate with the infographic on the ACSM website. So should you like to read it, it's there going through each of the cues and where the where the numbers came from and why. Um, but also understand that these are supposed to be helpful and maybe this is not a one size fits all, maybe there are the exceptions. So please understand that when, when you look at that, we're trying to hit the general health of the runner that comes in. How do we keep them out of the doctor's office and not in Dr. Kevin's office? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, I'll definitely include a, a link to, um, you know, even if you have to provide that to me later on, a link to that in the show notes. But I think that is important to say before we go over these cues that, Yes, obviously, nobody's going to be able to emulate all of these cues perfectly. Maybe maybe Eliud Kipchoge, but even I'm sure he does, has a few of flaws in his stride. But um, yeah, I mean, it's important to note because, again, I think people could somewhat be discouraged if they look at this infographic and think, oh, I don't look at all like that when I run. What's the point of trying to maybe practice? So I think even if you're able to maybe work on a few of these skills, they can significantly improve your running, not only your performance, but also kind of longevity, for sure. Yes. And just also understand that there's also science to show that even when you work on a couple of them together, your learning might actually be improved and you can make even better change, uh, better um, healthy changes on terms of impact and motion. So it will take some time. It does take some learning. We acknowledge that. Um, but these are at least some things to get started and some maybe targets to shoot for. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah, but we can just briefly uh, maybe go over some. That would be awesome. Sure. So... Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I will remember this. I can up. actually, um, I can pull it up on the screen. I have oh, it. Great. I, okay. Yeah. So that way, at least if you can see it, uh, that might be helpful. And then for the other uh, viewers, we can direct you to uh, ACSM website. Or if you want to, you can share it, Brady. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, let me let me pull that up. I think that'll be great for everyone to to see that as well. So I came I came prepared Thank you so much. <laughs> with all of the relevant slides. Okay, great. All right, here we go. Thank you so much. All right, so one of the things uh, I want you to look at is that we're looking at a movement pattern. And we chose this image because this is the highest point of loading that your body is going to experience when you're running. This is all weight on one foot. How well can we control that motion over thousands and thousands of steps during a typical run? So some things we wanna be looking for are uh, including linear arm swing. So rather than having arms that cross the, the front of the body across the midline, maybe some of you experience that when you're tired, you start falling into the using the trunk more and really swinging the arms. That means we're starting to lose muscle control of things that are happening lower down or more proximal. So on the hips, the glutes, your body's getting tired. <clears throat> Uh, if we look at the squeeze the gluteal muscles or the buttocks, this is a hard cue to do, but really what we mean by that is just contract those muscles. And it's going to feel a little bit strange, but when you fire up those muscles, it can help with controlling the motion of the hips and therefore further down the knees and the ankles. It widens the stance a little bit, helps control pelvic drop, and keeps your knees in a more healthy position instead of rotating in or dropping in toward valgus. You may have heard that term as well. One of the ways also we can accomplish this is through a fast foot turnover or cadence. You can use either term. We're aiming for 170 steps a minute or, or higher. 
know, there's going to come a point, of course, of diminish, law of diminishing returns. You're going to get to a point where your steps are so fast, you start to lose speed, and you're going to be doing more jump roping. And, you know, that's, that's okay if that's what you want to do. But really, we want to find that happy medium where you can still maintain a nice uh, pace that you want to do. Just get your feet moving faster. Our goal is also to rapidly bring your feet around or pull your foot in more toward you rather quickly so your feet land more under your hips. And that's what this picture was trying to show for you here of what that might look like. It may never be perfect, but let's strive to get that foot closer to under those hips as well. Shorter steps also mean less bounce. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone here as well. When we look at the position of the head, there are different cues that may work. And so we've tried a variety over the past decade, 12 years, and there's some good papers to show that you can try and teach people a little bit of forward lean or anterior lean, whatever term you wanna use, but sometimes people misinterpret that and they start bending at the waist and that causes other problems. So we don't want that. What, what cue might help the excessive forward lean but get your body into a nice position is maybe tuck the chin up a little bit or pull a string through the spine or through the top of the head so it draws your body up. They're doing the same thing. So the visualization might work differently for anybody, but the goal is going to be the same of excessive forward lean. We want to avoid that at the waist. I also heard maybe some cues in terms of where to look in front of you. Um, could those be maybe used as another cue? Like I know, you know, if you're obviously looking straight down on the ground, that's probably not good. Is there like maybe a, a certain distance that might help if people want to use that as a cue or is that maybe not as evidence-based as this yeah. chin, chin yeah. tucking technique? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm not aware of uh, the, the visualization part, except for the head down. I have seen that put into practice. I have not seen really publications on that. And the tuck the chin, just so that people know, is that is not a published cue per se. This is something to avoid the position, something to get you in the right position. So uh, just kind of understand that that's, that kind of works together as well. Uh, the, the pointing the kneecaps forward is a published cue, and that kind of goes together with the squeeze the gluteal muscles. You're really trying to open up the knees and widen the stance a little bit. So uh, some people respond really well to that cue, but what we're trying to prevent is the knee dive and the knee collapse and getting the feet to just open up a little bit as well. So that might work for some of you, but we don't want knees bumping. We don't want them grinding against each other. And for those runners that have knee bruises or know that you know either your ankles scuff or you have holes in your, your shorts or your leggings because your knees are grinding, we gotta get those kneecaps pointing forward and really work on the gluteal strength. Other cues that might help are short, quick steps, which you can benefit from some knee lift, decreasing the foot crossover here, and it really softens impact uh, forces on the joints. And landing softly is an excellent way to do that. So this is well published. And I do want to credit uh, Dr. Davis's group with starting to really work on those cues. And they've had a lot of success with, with doing that in case series, in interventional studies, and so on, and others have taken that forward, even taking it to the military. So this is nice to see that if landing softly works for you, then that means you're using the right muscles to start softening those steps. You're gonna start using your gluteal muscles, your hamstrings, your calf muscles. So all of these work together to create a pattern of motion that is really, I think, gonna be protective against injury. So hopefully yeah, that explains that a little bit better. 
Oh, yeah, no doubt. I think the explanation mm -hmm. the explanation was perfect. And then at the bottom there are just a couple, a couple more habits um, that, or I guess rather suggestions on how to implement these, just suggesting take a break and walk for a minute or two. We kind of already discussed that, you know, what's the best way to do this? Maybe you go one or two minutes on, a couple minutes off to make sure you're rested so that each time you start and try to integrate these cues, you're not fatigued mentally or physically. Um, and then obviously, caveat, you know, don't outrun your endurance capacity, sort of <laughs> build your way up into all of these. Something runners are not typically good at, you know, we don't <laughs> like to, we don't like to uh, limit ourselves often. So we kind of like to jump right into things and go full, full force from the, from the start, but, you know, to avoid injury and to really optimize, I think running form slower is better, but something I'm continuous, continually learning as well. <laughs> Very good. All right. So cool. I appreciate you um, describing that. Again, I think that, you know, whether you're watching um, or listening, you can take a look at this infographic on your own time or during the podcast. And um, I found it super helpful. And just to have an image, I think, of whether it's yourself running, whether you video yourself and see yourself running or looking at this infographic and trying to replicate that during a run, I find that to be super helpful. Um, something that I used to do, I find it kind of funny, but something I used to do when I was a younger runner, I would always watch runners on TV and the Olympics or like at track meets and I would see somebody with like a beautiful form. So one of my favorite runners used to be a guy named Bernard Lagat. And I always just watched him run and I'm like, oh my gosh, he has the best running form. So I'd go out on my runs and try to run like he did. So <laughs> You know, obviously it's a little bit, you think you look like them. And then when you probably look at a video of yourself, you don't quite look like them, but, <laughs> um, but it's always, you know, fun, nice to have a visual representation of what you want to do while running. Um, and I think that that will help people to, to kind of uh, implement some of these, these things that we talked about today. So thank you so much for, for going over that. Um, and now I just have a kind of a final few topics that I would like to um, discuss. I definitely want to get to a few listener uh, Q and A's um, because I think we had some pretty decent, a decent amount of interest on Twitter, actually. I think you were one of the more popular listener Q&A uh, <laughs> uh, guests everybody. on the podcast. Yeah, so um, I definitely want to get to those. Do you have about 15 more minutes where we can yes. maybe talk yes. about running shoes and then get to the listener Q&A? Yes. Okay, cool. Definitely wanted to talk about running shoes because when it comes to running, I think this is one of the more popular topics. Everybody's always thinking, what type of running shoes should I get? People are always asking me on Twitter, what do you think about these shoes? And I'm just like, I, I really don't know. I'm not a biomechanics expert. I'm not selling a type of shoe. And in general, I try to just tell people, you know, if it feels comfortable, it's probably, you know, a decent shoe. Um, and that's not the greatest advice, but it's kind of the best that I want to give. The last thing I want to do is, t uh, you know, recommend a shoe to somebody and then they get hurt and, you know, come right. after me. So, Selecting the right running shoes, what are some of your top recommendations on, you know, selecting the right shoes? If somebody is thinking about whether they're a runner or taking up running and want to get a good pair of shoes for them that are going to help prevent injury, that are going to be comfortable, what do you suggest uh, are some of the best steps to select the best running shoes? Sure. And that, that's, that's actually a, a great question. And again, I'm going to use the word best for uh, what is going to promote the healthier uh, foot motion. And how does that translate up going, going up the body? So uh, um, this is probably going to be an unpopular statement, but uh, <laughs> shoe companies don't make money if they don't sell shoes. And so each year there's going to be a new variety of things out there, new adjustments, new tricks of the trade, new gimmicks, whatever they might be. What I try and look for are what is still going to keep the foot in a natural position. So basically 
when you land, what's going to get your heel down to the natural position where it should be and not up on a wedge? So I look for shoes that don't have a high heel and a low toe. So the heel to toe drop, we want that to be low so that we get that full natural um, extension, if you will, that heel down to the ground, nice Achilles stretch, let the muscles do their job. The next thing we also want to look for are, uh, and if you look on the inside of the shoe, some are designed to have a lot of arch support and posting in there. Some are very rigid and control the midfoot motion. So if you go into a shoe store and you pick up a shoe and you can wrench it pretty easily and there's not a lot of stuffing in there, your foot is probably gonna be working a little bit harder to control the motion and it's doing its job. But if you go in there and it's a really fat shoe and you're having a tough time twisting it and it's really stiff in the middle, that changes how your foot is transmitting force from when you hit the ground to rolling off on the heel and then up through the body. It's gonna change what your body is doing. And shoes that do that um, are more likely to cause problems than not. And so we look at shoes that have a little bit of flexibility to them, that the inside of the shoe should be uh, really free of a lot of the materials that provide a lot of art support, stuffing in there, air cells, gimmicky things. We, we don't need that. We just need a shoe that has a nice resilient bottom to it, pretty flexible, kind of looks like this style. Mm -hmm. So the, for the people who can't quite see it, it's a shoe that's got a very evenly, an even height from the heel to the toe, a nice wide toe box that's shaped like a foot um, instead of very narrow or pointed. A shoe should not feel tight or really snug on your foot. You should be able to fully wiggle your toes and splay them. So that way when your foot hits the ground, the foot can do its job and splay the toes and create that tress or support so it can bounce back and give you that energy as you step and bounce off. Don't let the shoe do the work. Let your foot and all the structures of the foot do it. What can happen over, yeah, so what can happen over time is the more shoe you put on your body, the less uh, you're going to be able to feel the ground underneath your foot and you're not going to be able to react as well and you might fall into mechanics that are a little less favorable, which means knee dive, pelvic drop, foot aversion, all those things we don't want. So a shoe that's a little bit thinner, you can feel the ground a little bit more readily, you can respond and interact with the ground a little bit more healthy. I hope I explained that okay. Perfectly, yeah. And I think that's a very a very diplomatic answer because it avoids, you know, people want to know what brand should I buy? And all yeah. of these brands have shoes that fall into yeah. the category of the shoe you're describing, something that's flexible, low yeah. heel to toe drop. Regarding that, do you, is there a particular number that you want or maybe just as low as possible? Because I know there are, you know, some shoes that are 30, you know, uh, yeah. what is it, millimeters maybe, 30 millimeter yeah. drops. Some are, you know, 10 or there, less. Yeah, so there's 30. So when you see the really, really big number, that's usually the heel or the stack height. So that's usually like, if it's really high, it's in the mid 30s. That's mm -hmm. like a pillow. Um, when we talk about heel to toe drop, a big drop is like 10 to 12 millimeters, that's pretty big, that puts your foot in a wedge position. Then there's the moderate, which is like the six to eight. And then there's the lower or the minimal, which we like to define as more zero to four. People you know, have different definitions of that, but really operationally, we want it to be as low as possible. We want the foot to feel like when you hit the ground, it feels natural. That's what we're looking for. Um, and technically, if you have anything that's over an inch in height, that's actually considered a high heel. Mm. So for those folks who are running in Shoes that have heels over an inch, you're running in high heels, which is a very different mechanic than a nice flat foot that has a different a feel to it.
Yeah, uh, no doubt. And you can definitely feel it in wearing the different shoes. I mean, you can certainly feel when a, a, it's putting you in a weird or compromised position. Yes. And so the one thing I do want to caution people about too, is that I don't want you to hear this and think, oh shoot, I have a, a 12 millimeter drop. I got to get rid of those and run out and go buy a zero. Transition, please transition. And so what I mean by that is take the next few months to go ahead and maybe do a shoe that has a moderate heel to toe drop. And then a few months after that, then graduate to something that's